Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, an irregular conversation with some of the most interesting people in marketing, technology, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email that covers important shifts in marketing technology. People who work, the world's largest media, tech, and advertising companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay, today I am joined by Kevin Tate. Kevin is the Chief Revenue Officer of Clearbit. It's a B2B data enrichment, activation, and intelligence company. Clearbit is an interesting player in how they collect business data from over 200 different sources to create more than 350 million business profiles across the world. Uh, Sales and marketing leaders use this data to tap in to and enrich their existing segmentation to do things like prospecting, personalization, and lead generation. Recently, uh, just this week, they've announced the launch of their data activation platform. And, you know, they've created this data set of business profiles that marketing sales leaders can use to integrate with their CRMs and their marketing automation platforms and CDPs. Now, I'm talking with Kevin today because he's worked across a number of high-profile B2B SaaS companies serving in executive roles ranging from revenue to marketing. And we're going to talk about this evolution of Clearbit, how Clearbit fits into the privacy ecosystem, and how brands are leveraging these sort of open data sources to really drive marketing and sales. And so today, I give you Kevin. Hey, Juan, how's it going? So tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, You've worked in a number of executive roles. Just before we started recording, you were telling me some wonderful stories from the 90s. Um, (laughs) Please give me an introduction to your background, where you've been working, but also what attracted you to work with Clearbit? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's it's super fun to be on the podcast. Um, and yeah, I've dated myself already, haven't I? I've, um, I've been at this a while. I started working on B2B internet solutions in 96. And actually, way back then, I was, uh, I was a database administrator. Uh, for a, a database product called Informix that uh, was very, very early on in the dynamic web and e-commerce days. But as I, as I, as I look at the, the industries I've gotten to work in, from e-commerce to human capital management, uh, the Internet of Things, market research, data has actually always been a huge part of, of those solutions and figuring out how do you collect data, manage data, and especially help companies put data to work in a way that that serves their business. And so um, to your question, when I when I drew me to Clearbit was realizing how quickly and what interesting ways the role of data is changing for companies right now. And, and having Clearbit right be right at the center of that really, really it fascinates me. And so it's been a pleasure to work with uh, with Clearbit on helping companies with that. Mm. Yeah, it, it's um, it's interesting. I, I would agree with you there that the role of data in companies, even over the past two to three years with COVID-19, has seen such a significant change. And I agree with you. I'm totally fascinated as well by how we understand data, how we approach it, uh, but also what, what, what does it look like in terms of activating that data? You know, I think it's the most valuable aspect is being able to actually use it to power experiences for our customers. And leading into this for our, our next question, talking about Clearbit, recently the company announced what, what you're calling a data activation platform. 
Um, this is a big evolution in the company. It's bringing together a number of the existing services, reorienting them to really help sort of those marketing and sales leaders leverage Clearbit's B2B data profiles in a way that's more oriented towards activation as opposed to intelligence and being able to bring that sort of unified service. So uh, I would love to know uh, what has informed that decision, that evolution uh, towards this data activation platform but also, what's the story of the company? How did the company start? Where has it been working over the years? And yeah, what sort of led up to this, this momentous change? And congratulations, by the way. Um, you know, it's a big shift in the business, but also, um, you know, uh, a positive step as well, I think, for the industry. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and yeah, thanks for pointing out the launch. It's been a lot of fun um, putting the data activation platform together and then, and then bringing it out to the market has been a ton of fun and, and very well received by our, our customers and the community. But, but yeah, let me back up and tell you a little bit about how we, how we got to there. So when, when Clearbit started back in 2015, early 2016, it was really all about the data, right? So how could we gather and centralize the company specific data, the sort of business card level data that go-to-market teams needed to be able to, to address their market, to address their customers. And that that's still a, a key piece of what Clearbit does and is typically thought of as enrichment, right? How do you bring uh, how do you bring all the context to the companies you already know about? But then what happened over the past several years, say the last four years, is um, one, we've been very, very fortunate. We've gotten to work with uh, many of the world's fastest growing companies and, and B2B teams. And very specifically, their growth engineering teams and their go-to-market teams showed us all kinds of interesting things you could do with that data, right? So we saw them take our APIs and integrations and apply that company data combined with the data they already had, uh, apply it to their website and their email campaigns and their advertising efforts um, and their lead scoring and routing and their go-to-market reporting, all kinds of stuff, right? All up and down the stack. And, um, and so we've taken our learnings from all those different points of, of integration and activation in their funnel. And now we've built it into what we just launched, the data activation platform, which makes that integration and application of the data uh, much easier. So rather than having to stitch it together with, with APIs or across systems, you can use our unified interface and you can build audiences and you can select destinations for that data in a way that's consistent and, and measurable across systems. Mm. And so it, it's, been, it's been a super fun process. And I think part of what, part of what I'm most excited about with the data activation platform is that it, it, it allows Clearbit to be the foundation of the, the smart stack that a lot of our customers are, are building right now. And they're looking ahead toward a future that has a lot of personalization and a lot of customer relevance and a real understanding of their customer market. And I'm excited to have Clearbit act as the data foundation for that stack as it evolves. Hmm. Yeah, it has been quite an evolution. I mean, uh, it follows the uh, trajectory of the industry as well. You know, you see things like the rise of the customer data platform and that over, if you asked me five years ago, Kevin, what's your customer data platform strategy? I would, I'll probably say to you, what is that? <laughs> what, what does that mean? <laughs> um, 
but I I think yeah, there's been a massive I think a titanic push in the industry to really make use, or I think you used the words earlier, which are quite good, put data to work, being able to actually get that data and use it and rich customer data data profiles so that you can deliver great experiences. And I mean, you know, I think a lot of, um, a lot of people in the space have been talking probably ad nauseum about that as well. The importance to do that, how it is a competitive edge for brands as well, to be able to deliver on experience. There is more research suggesting that experience is a massive differentiator just as much as product, just as much as pricing, the ability to deliver a fantastic customer experience lives on the smart stack or lives on that environment in which you're able to activate data, make use of it, empower teams to use it as well across the business that you're working in. So um, yeah, I agree that, you know, it's it's interesting to see how Clearbit's evolved within that context as well. I think um, to your point, I think that part of the industry evolution has been um, the way that teams think about and expect to use data has has also shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, analogy that comes to mind, and I'll, I'll date myself again here, but um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that my my music was contained in this music library, and I had to <laughs> store it on a hard drive and think about, well, how am I going to get it on the drive, and how big is the drive, and and what computers it hooked up, hooked up to, and how am I going to you know get it to somewhere I can listen to it. And now that kind of almost seems almost silly. Well, of course, the you know music is just on tap, right? I can I can use Spotify or I can use Apple Music and I can play pretty much any song I want instantly. And I I don't have to think about the the storing and the managing and the access part of it. And in a similar way, I think data can be very much on tap for companies who have that right kind of foundation. And then the 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 focus shifts from how do I collect and organize and manage to how can I, how can I apply it? And how can I put it to work, making my customer experience better? Mm. Yeah. The concept that comes to mind, Kevin, on that point is data as a product. Um, mm. Instead mm. of data being the sort of raw materials, you know, it's, it's not mm-hmm. the, um, I'm not sure if you know about the analogy, you know, data is the new oil. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I would also, there is also a secondary conversation about that to say, well, actually no data is the new sand. You know, so sand is used for creating glass windows. You kind of need to refine that to a point where it's usable into a product. You know, sand is sand. Like, you know, my kids go down to the beach and play the beach in the sand. That's fine. But, <laughs> but they have to some sort of manipulation, right? And there's just so much data as well. There's another layer on this where big data has become so massive that teams can't even access it. You know, there's this the huge demand for companies like AWS and cloud servers and being able to store huge amount, like in, in environments like Redshift, being able to store huge volumes, volumes of data. You know, I think there's, I think there is a aspect to this where you're right, where you're thinking about the ability to actually take that um, information and, and use it but it may end up being something like data as a product, like an Apple streaming or a Spotify, where you usually just you jump in, you start using that um, service straight away instead of having to take a vinyl out of the sleeve and put it into a <laughs> put it into a into a player. So I think that's pretty interesting. I think there's such a, such an interesting aspect to this, and it kind of leads into our second topic here about 
how data activation is becoming mission critical. So really great McKinsey study that came out late last year. It was talking about how almost 80% of B2B buying decisions are now fully influenced by online content and virtual interactions with salespeople and even with e-commerce as well. You know, and so you look at that and you look at what COVID has done, you know, it's really taken the people who do sales um, or do sort of account-based marketing. They've taken them out of the cocktail parties and, and take them out of the dinners and take them out of the offices and take and put them behind desks, you know, and you see a lot more now. And I think a shift in this is a sales automation, you know, giving more B2B buyers the ability to buy directly online without having to go through a sales department, and that's obviously sort of creating this environment where, yeah, um, you know, you kind of need services like Clearbit, the, um, as you mentioned before, you need the business card data because you can't literally get a business card <laughs> anymore in a physical environment, you know, and, and, and the COVID situation will change, of course, and people will go back to physical environments. But I think there is a permanence to this shift in behavior. I think a lot of B2B buyers actually see it as a way to take more control over their uh, purchasing decisions and to be more influenced are more um, fully informed. But what are some of the use cases that you're seeing really valuable when it comes to using a data activation platform, using that business card data to enrich sort of existing data sets within brands? Yeah, it's a it's a great point. And the shift in, in B2B buying gets talked about a lot, but it 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 truly is transformational and and very much accelerated. I, I think that's the that's that's the biggest impact is just how quickly the pendulum has swung toward digital buying and digital funnels and digital product uh, experiences for companies who who had not expected that. The um, the as you point out, there's a lot of different places that the data can can be useful in in shaping that digital funnel, and we think about it really kind of top to bottom. So one of the first places that companies will will apply this sort of full picture of their market is really to define their ideal customer profile. So having the full picture, not just on all the companies already in your CRM, um, but to be able to look out at your full target market and ask a question, like say, show me all the companies in EMEA and North America who have B2B SaaS models, who have between 50 and 5,000 employees and who use either Salesforce or HubSpot in their marketing stack, um, you have a list, you have an instant list. Mm. And that's a list you can start to refine and understand and match against your own existing customer database and try to really figure out who are the segment or segments that you want to approach that you think your product is going to be the best fit for. And so defining that ideal customer profile at the very highest level, and then getting a full view of who are the companies you already know about and who are the ones you have yet to meet. And then using that understanding of those companies to target your advertising or tailor your messaging or personalize your website. Um, that's something that flows all the way down through the funnel. In some ways, we, we see companies think about it as almost like customized buyer journeys. Um, how can I take this refined sand, if you will, and use it to, to look at my market in a way that allows me to create a buyer journey that's just for them? 
and that they're going to they're going to recognize as as tailored to their needs. So that's there's a lot that goes into that, but that's where a lot of the the use cases for uh, for the data activation come in. Mm. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I mean, there's so much you can learn about your customers, but I think teams are increasingly seeing that a lot of it may not be necessarily helpful. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, yeah. like yeah. there's, I would say that you know, there's always kind of a handful of data points that you really need that is really crucial. And I think you touched on a few of these, which are, you know, uh, what's the size of the company? I think the technology that's used, particularly if you are a SaaS business, you know, what tech are they using? I'm not sure if you are familiar of the concept of an anchor platform. So, you know, the, mm. the concept in a MarTech stack would be you have these anchor platforms which then would have other services that would sit around it. So HubSpot, as an example, would be an anchor platform. Same with Adobe, mm-hmm. Salesforce, these anchor platforms, and they're sort of the center of gravity for, um, for a marketing technology stack. Then all the other mm-hmm. services integrate over it. Like uh, I was talking with our last episode, actually, Making Sense of MarTech, I was talking with Scott Brinker about... Um, how HubSpot just hit a thousand apps in their ecosystem. And the reason for that is because of that aspect of they're an anchor platform, they're a CRM marketing automation platform, but they have this ecosystem of apps that sit around it in the same way that Salesforce's biggest pivot, um, I think it was, more than a decade now, I think, um, when they they opened up their app store for B2B apps to be launched and used within the Salesforce ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So so I, I actually think this whole idea of like an anchor platform, but then also layering on top of that sort of the ecosystem play, there's a data point there, which your customers are tapping into around the technology stack that their prospective customers can use. Um, and, you know, there's also things like the size of the business, the type of the business as well, what industry they're in. There's a bunch of different uh, sort of profiles, but what would you say to that? I mean, do you think that the sort of ecosystem participation and that sort of tech stack understanding, um, yeah, what what our prospective customer is using currently today, how crucial is that to your customers? I think it's a huge, huge factor. In fact, the as you point out, it's those those technographic uh, data points around what what technologies a company seems to be using in their own stack that can be great clues as to what's going to be most relevant for them, or how do you present content or start conversations that they're going to care about. So the, the anchor platform is a perfect example. You know, we see similar things around e-commerce companies built on Shopify, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, uh, if you, if you can tell that about your prospect and you can use that not only to define a, uh, a segment that you want to advertise to or that you want to conduct an outbound campaign to, but you can also recognize that when they land on your website. And so if someone is coming in with, as you suggest, someone coming in with, with HubSpot as their anchor platform, then let's show them the use cases and the, the case studies that are relevant to HubSpot and companies that are built on HubSpot. And so a little can go a long way when it comes to the tailoring of those messages. Mm. And I think technology is one of the, the most relevant ways to, to predict what's going what's gonna to connect with a customer. Mm. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to that. I, I remember even a few years ago, I was working, consulting, helping brands with their experimentation services. And I would mm. use this little Chrome extension actually called um, What Runs. 
Um, yeah. And sure. you've heard, you probably heard of what rounds yep. and, yep. you know, that tool is like, okay, you can jump onto that prospective customer's website. You can go, oh, this is their tech stack. They're using Google Analytics, using Adobe for this. This is their service they're running. And so you have all this information. So when you get on a call, you're like, oh, we've already had a look at your potential stack, you know, and this is the things that we would actually start thinking about. Um, so even that, you know, at a sort of very rudimentary level is, you know, obviously quite helpful to understand, uh, yeah, the, your customer's tech stack, because it gives you the ability to start having the right conversations um, right away. If the conversation's happening on the website, that's great. If the conversation's happening over a Zoom, call that's also great but it's having that right information so you can have the right level of discussion so um so yeah i think that's really interesting but i'd like to shift now into privacy as a topic Mm -hmm. and where clearbit kind of fits into the privacy ecosystem of 2022 now 2021 was a big year uh, for consumer privacy, data collection, tracking, and consent. We had things like Apple's app tracking transparency that rolled out. Um, a lot of users, I think uh, there's a, a wide ranging amount of statistics on this, but there's between 60% of Apple users, uh, iPhone users, right through to 90% of Apple users selected no for apps that have that prompt. So uh, would you like to be tracked by this app? Uh, the majority of users are saying no. A lot of discussion and debate around what is actually that real number, but it's it, it's pretty high anyway. But then there's also the deprecation of third-party cookies. Google has obviously announced last year that um, that Chrome is going to be foregoing cookies into the future. There's alternatives like the Brave browser coming up, which are more private. You've got um, companies like DuckDuckGo, which is a, a branded as a privacy-focused sort of browser similar to Google Search, and they're hitting I think 100 million users a month now. So it's pretty big, you know, DuckDuckGo. <laughs> I, you know, I thought it was always a bit of a niche thing, but now it's actually getting pretty big. Um, but again, you know, you've got this also this layer of this consumer sentiment towards data privacy and how comfortable people are feeling about sharing their data online now. And there's a number of wide ranging studies that talk about that. And then you've got companies like Facebook that all seems like there's a new court case, new sort of privacy violation that's happening every week. You know, then you also have uh, GDPR being enforced uh, more aggressively, even into the 2022. So within that entire environment, there's so much uh, and changing in terms of privacy and how we're approaching it in this sort of day and age. Well, um, I'd like to learn a bit, you know, about how Clearbit works within that environment. What have been some of the considerations that the company has taken around privacy? Well, we've talked about the concept of the business card, and I think it's an interesting motif of this because business cards, you know, uh, if you put a business card on a table or coffee table, you left it there after a party, a work party, and then I picked it up and I said, oh, I've got this, con- I've got this contact details is that a privacy violation maybe you know you know we used to have public records of people uh, company information in you know in australia we call it white pages or yellow pages i saw a hilarious joke about this saying oh i've looked at my yellow pages and i can see all of these companies contact information and names that's a breach in pii you know this shouldn't be you know this is a privacy crisis but actually no like company information has been made public for many many decades and so i think there's an interesting space and in conversation about how Clearbit's approaching this how are you navigating all of this change and what does that look like yeah super important topic and and one we end up working with our customers on uh, a lot i think what there are two two big forces at work that we see that are changing to your point even in 2022 versus 2021 how how we see 
companies thinking about data. The first, as you point out, is the, the changing rules and usefulness around cookies, right? So third-party cookies in particular are have really shifted in terms of how pervasive and how useful those can be for brands. And as a result, what we see is companies moving back toward server-side tracking and, and first-party cookies. So to, to be more specific there, if you're trying to figure out whether your advertising is being effective or you're trying to understand what users um, are doing on your site or, or what of your content they're engaging with, companies are now relying more on their own tracking capabilities with something like a server-side tracking, or they're gonna use cookies using first-party cookies so that it's coming directly from, from them as a company. And, that, and that's, a, that's an important shift. It puts, um, it, it creates, a little bit more onus on companies to be thoughtful about the, the data that they collect and how they use it, which is a good thing. Um, and uh, But it also, I think, puts them a bit more in, in control of, of what, they can, what they can learn and how they can, can use that data. So for example, what I mean there is when, when we work with a company on advertising solutions on, on Facebook or Google, companies will use our company data to do much more precise targeting, right? So the kind of things we just talked about, technographic information or what systems they're using or how bigger companies, they can use all that to, to target that advertising. And because we are helping them track the effectiveness of that and what people did on their website on the server side, they can craft their conversion criteria that they send back to those ad platforms. And what I mean by that is, all those ad platforms are trying to get better and more effective and smarter by listening for signals around when did someone not just click on an ad, but they went on to you know, buy something or, or, or do, something, uh, do something that was valuable on your site. And in a B2B context, that can vary a lot, right? The, the, the indication of a good click could be, oh, they looked at the pricing page or they read a, uh, a specific piece of product content. And so we can help companies craft that criteria and then feed that back to the ad platform on their behalf, making that whole loop smarter and more customized to their needs. Nice. So all that is to say that while it, uh, a shift towards server-side and first-party cookies means that uh, companies have to think a little more carefully about, about those systems, it also gives them uh, a little bit more fine-grained control over what they can measure. Yeah. So that's the, that's the cookie piece. Um, the second, I think, is more generally as the, as the shift toward more first-party data continues, I think companies are thinking much more about how they create and maintain their own understanding of their customers and their market, right? So, and, and that's going to depend by companies, but we see this in the, the recent upswing in, in CDPs, right, in customer data platforms. So companies are really thinking about how do I build um, an asset, uh, a data asset that lets me understand my market, understand my prospects, understand my customers, and how do I keep that understanding fresh? Because I, I can't necessarily rely on third parties in the way that I could even, even a few years ago. Hmm. Obviously, you guys are working with your data partners every day. So 200, more than 200 sources. I don't know how you guys manage that many sources. It's absolutely phenomenal. But there's a lot of data hygiene work that happens behind the scenes with Clearbit as well. 
And so I think that's quite interesting to think about how even sort of some of the um, interesting use cases I came across was about, you know, when a somebody uh, leaves company X and they join company Y, you know, being able to sort of reconcile that um, that change in position or, you know, they go move further up in seniority in a business or, you know, even um, companies, perhaps their tech stack changes Mm -hmm. over time as well. And so you're keeping this, it's an ongoing sort of enrichment that, um, profile cleansing as well, making sure that that data is as accurate as possible. Um, and I, I'd like to, I'd like you to talk to that a little bit around how you work with your data providers and your sources to ensure things like compliance, but also that quality aspect as well. Like what does that look like at Clebit? Yeah, the freshness piece really matters a lot. And uh, you know that one of the sort of immutable truths about a, a data a data asset or a, any kind of data set is you know the instant it's uh, it's gathered and immediately starts deteriorating, right? Because things are changing. And to your point, people are changing their tech stack and they're changing companies and they're changing roles. So we're constantly looking for those signals uh, and making sure that we've, we're keeping not only our view of the market and view of companies up to date, but all our customer uh, systems and, and partner systems as well. And to your point, a lot of times those changes are some, some interesting points for people, right? So if I have an existing customer and my my customer champion or the person noted as the economic buyer on my Salesforce record changes jobs, either within the company or to a new company, that's really important for me to know as their account manager, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, could I, could I have LinkedIn up on a browser and, and be constantly refreshing everybody that's in my CRM to see if anybody changes jobs? I could, but that would take a lot of my time. So, a lot of that visibility is in making sure that those publicly available data sources are being accurately reflected and, and understanding what's mu- most useful for a company. Um, one of the more popular features of our new platform is something we call alerts and triggers. So you can create an alert that's specific to something like that, a job change for existing companies, or a company change for a prospect who's uh, past a certain point in the sales funnel and make sure the salespeople know about it. Mm. And that could mean uh, letting them know right away with a Slack message because that person is on your website now. Um, Or it could be sending them a a weekly digest of here's what you need to know about what changed with your, with your, your current customers. But it's really all about context, right? And the more context that a company has and the fresher that context is, the more likely they are to engage their customers in a more relevant and meaningful way. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, hey, because you're right, that that typical sort of problem of just staying across what's happening with your your existing customers even and your prospective customers and your relationships, you know, that is just a massive piece of work (laughs) and just staying ahead of things and making sure, you know, you're celebrating, you know, even just like the person, the niceties of things sometimes it's like, oh, congratulations on the new role. You know, you may not even see that in the LinkedIn feed, having the right information, you know, to be able to have the right conversation. And I, I think that's a really interesting point that you raise. But I want to talk about, customer identity resolution for a minute because Clearbit has a really significant role, I think, and a pretty distinct role in this. Um, Short story. So I actually visited a Clearbit site last week doing a bit of research for this podcast. And in real time, I could see what Clearbit knew about me 
uh, even though I've actually never signed up or used the services. Um, so it knew where I worked well at the Martech Weekly. Um, it even pulled in my profile picture from Twitter. Uh, which I thought was quite funny. And I saw that on the site and I'm like, whoa, this is like amazing because I haven't signed up for, for anything. I haven't given my email address away. haven't, you know, given any, filled out any forms at this point, but there was an ability to be able to identify me using the proprietary data sets that Clearbit has. And so I think this kind of enrichment in real time is a pretty big paradigm shift when you approach things like personalization. Nine times out of 10, when you talk to somebody about what are you doing with your personalization strategy, they would talk about using the data from their existing customer sets. So the customers who have either signed up for something in the past, they've given their email address or they've purchased something, and how can they personalize experiences for those customers? But what I experienced when I jumped onto the Clearbit website was that this was personalization for somebody who has not even given their email address away yet. They're not a customer. And so that's a really interesting paradigm shift when it comes to owned properties like website and even app or even somewhere like email, right? Being able to pull in these sort of enriched profiles, being able to identify customers online and then create a personalized experience uh, based on the information that Clearbet has uh, available. So I want to know, how do you see this paradigm shift changing with some of the brands that you work with? And how does that sort of identity resolution and personalization drive these kinds of conversations brands are having with their customers? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think there's a couple of different areas there. One, you mentioned ID resolution and the other sort of personalization and, and how best to put that to work. So let me, let me, let me take the first one first. So, yeah, ID resolution is um, is a really interesting capability. So we, like a lot of companies, will do reverse IP lookup. So that is based on the IP address you're coming from. You know, we can we can do a DNS lookup and say, oh, this is the company that that's that's registered to, and that will get us to Martech Weekly, right? And um, that you know, to be honest, was was a lot more helpful. A couple of years ago, when people were going into an office and those offices were more reliably linked to their um, to their to their companies and IP addresses, but one of the advantages that we have at Clearbit is that we we can also see data coming from lots of other sources too. So as you as you point out, probably because the the Martech Weekly domain was used for, for your social account, we know, oh, well, that's also associated with this domain name. And a lot of stuff that we're doing is all based on the company domain name. So we can say, oh, this is a profile picture, or this is a social bio, or these are things associated with that company domain. So in addition to letting us do things like pull in your, your profile picture, it helps us with that identity resolution. And so we've been able to get back to resolution rates that largely, if not completely, get over the fact that people are, are working from home a lot these days. And that helps because if, you, if you're trying to um, present content that's relevant to a company, then uh, you're going to have a, a much bigger chance of doing that if you know a little something about, about who that company is. Even if you don't know who the person is, you can figure out what company and what industry they're coming from, which gets me to, to the personalization piece. So personalization and are the idea of personalization has been around for 
a long, long time since the very beginning of the web. And it's also been kind of tricky since the very beginning. I think, um, you know, when with Clearbit, you know, we're, we're offering a marketing solution to marketers. So we'll, we'll do cheeky things like what, what you're talking about. We can pull in your logo or, or show you in the graphic. And it's kind of a, kind of a wink and a nod to a, a, a marketer. But on the flip side, you, you know, brand wants to make sure they're never doing that in a way that's, that's creepy, right? Uh, or that makes, makes you feel like, like it's not the kind of relationship you want to start off with the company. And so I think personalization needs to be used carefully. Um, and one of, the, one of the most effective modes of personaliz- personalization that we've seen is actually the simplest. And, and that's just based on really high level information about a company's industry, say. So uh, at Clearbit, when we can tell, uh, for example, that a company is coming in from a certain industry, we will try to show logos or case studies that relate to that industry, right? Mm-hmm. Versus showing them something that's completely unrelated. And if not, you can always fall back to the you know, generic top five. But uh, we found, and, and I think others have found, that if you, if you can show especially case studies and content um, that are and examples that are more closely related to a company's industry, then they're going to find that more valuable and they're more likely to, to engage with the content. So, I, you know, whenever companies are going down the personalization uh, path, which is a very powerful use case for this kind of data, um, encourage them to think about that sort of segment level tailoring mm. and, and, and see what the results are. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think it's just, yeah, there's, I think that there's, there's something in that idea of being able to directly give a user relevancy and access to information in a way that's really helpful for their purchasing decision. So, you know, I think often personalization is bound up in the, the concept of being able to drive conversions and signups and even closing accounts and all of those things, right? Which is, of course, of course, that's where you would want to be pursuing personalization to see uplift in those areas. However, I think also personalization has a significant role in accessibility. And being mm-hmm. able to really tailor that information to a user so they can find things effectively. And sure, that may not be um, very correlated to those sort of hard business KPIs, but it lifts the total experience. It also lifts the brand recognition and gives you an experience going, wow, like I've been on a few B2B SaaS sites in the past and, and they were able to tailor something to me when I was looking. And that just completely differentiates it from the competitors, especially now where everybody's buying online. So Mm -hmm. I think it's actually more crucial than ever to think about accessibility, relevance, and something that's memorable by being able to use um, the tools available, the data sets from Clearbit, the ability to integrate it and enrich your existing platform, your existing systems using the uh, activation platform, but also more broadly working with CDPs and you know the ability to uh, really start understanding your customers in a way to have the right conversations. So really interesting. And uh, just on our last note here, on our conversation before this podcast, and we're doing a little bit of prep, you mentioned that you recently uh, changed your title at Clearbit from the Chief Marketing Officer to the Chief Revenue Officer. 
And we were joking a little bit and we we're saying, well, actually, no, you haven't sort of jumped, jumped into a different chair. You've just put two chairs on top of each other. Um, and, you know, uh, and you're sitting, you're sort of on this wobbly stack. Maybe it's not so wobbly, but uh, forgive me, Kevin. But, but effectively, um, you know, the, I think the idea there is that uh, how you're seeing it, and I think the, how the industry is seeing is that marketing operations and revenue operations are actually coming really closely together. The Venn diagram is becoming more of a circle than a Venn diagram. And I think that, you know, there's something interesting there about uh, how you're seeing those two roles consolidate and what does that kind of mean in a brand? Yeah, it again, super interesting topic. And we made the decision to put uh, sales and marketing uh, under the same leader here at, at Clearbit. Um because the alignment made a ton of sense. I mean, uh, especially at a MarTech company, um, having sales and marketing, uh, looking at the same metrics and organizing around the same programs and focused on the same goals uh, makes a ton of sense. But I, but I think it's more and more true for, for certainly every SaaS company, perhaps companies more broadly. I think a couple of things play into that. One is back to the, the shifts you were talking about at the beginning, right? The fact that so much of the B2B buying experience is now uh, digital and is taking place online. You know, if, if there used to be a case uh, to be made that, oh, well, marketing is just the, I don't know, the, the beginning of the conversation or just the lead gen and, and everything else is really sales. Um, boy, that's not true anymore, right? Um, the, the marketing experience and the, and the digital customer journey goes deep, deep into the funnel, probably potentially even to the point of purchase. So there's certainly a ton of overlap there. Mm. And, you know, and I know in our cases, every time we've taken steps to more closely align our sales development reps or business development team with our marketing programs and efforts, every time we apply more strategy and segmentation to our go-to-market efforts, the benefits are clear. So so we took that step on the, on the sales and marketing side with, with my new role. Similarly, and to your point, we're also bringing together our revenue operations. So we've had sales operations and go-to-market operations and marketing operations, and all those are also coming together in a way that lets us look at revenue and by extension, the customer journey from, from front to back, mm. right? So it's, it's all part of one chain. And I think one of the one of the things that we've tried to keep in mind about putting that chain together and having those teams work more closely together is that at one level it's about measurement, right? And again, okay, what are the metrics and what are the dashboards we look at? We we just did that today on Wednesday. We have a, a meeting that's across all those different departments and looks at all the key metrics. But really, at a level higher than that, the goal I think is to one understand what's really happening from front to back in the revenue chain and be able to understand where are the obstacles and where are the opportunities. And then, and, and this is perhaps the trickier part, how do you form a hypothesis about how to affect that obstacle or opportunity, uh, try something and see if it worked. Hmm. And that, that process of, of identifying obstacles and opportunities, forming, acting on and measuring the effect of these hypotheses that's something that needs to be very tightly coordinated across all those groups. Mm. And so I think bringing together this full revenue operations view makes it a little easier to, to bring that kind of approach to your revenue uh, front to back. Mm. I suppose you could say that 
you know, the ability to run experimentation and, and think about it from a first principles perspective is really quite, I think, quite helpful. So orienting around the problems instead of how every other business organizes, you know, I think that's, that, that, I think that a lot of companies that are get ahead are the ones that think about it from a first principles perspective, purely because they're orienting themselves around the business problems and the way they can experiment and understand those problems better so they can solve them and then obviously make progress in their business. But without the constraints of, well, oh, the CMO is doing this over here and the uh, head of sales is doing that over there and they don't talk to each other. That's the same problems across both of those disciplines often because it's the same customer that they're serving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I was talking about just last week in um, the newsletter about Agile and how Agile as a concept has become this really interesting well, initially it was this set of principles to how more effectively sort of uh, build and create software. But over time, they built a huge technology industry around agile. So there's more than 400 process companies that borrow concepts like Kanban and Scrum and, you know, like Jira is one of the most prominent ones out there. But what's actually happened there is that a lot of those tech companies have taken some very fluid concepts and principles in the original agile manifesto and have enshrined them in code. And so when you enshrine things in code, they become a little bit more rigid, a little bit more inflexible. And so a lot of companies, particularly uh, companies who are dealing with MarTech or teams and companies dealing with MarTech, they, they approach it and they're like, well, this agile stuff doesn't really work for us so well. They're thinking about first principles. What is the right organizing principle for us that aligns with our business problems, that aligns with the kind of customers we solve and the technology we use instead of taking something off the shelf. So I think I applaud you. I think it's a great way of thinking about how you're approaching business problems at Clearbit and how you orient your, your teams, but also even your own role around that. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I think that's a really great step and I think more people should be doing it. Um, so thank you for sharing and thank you for joining. Really great to have this conversation about Clearbit. Over to you, Kevin, where can we find you on the internet? Well, you'll find us at clearbit.com. And if you're looking for a place to get started with Clearbit, we have a free tool we put out recently called the Weekly Visitor Report, which mm -hmm. is a nice way to get a glimpse into the, the companies that are visiting your website and get a, a taste of how, how Clearbit data can work for you. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.